I've got a note back from Malik and Olga. They're, I think, in Colorado right now. But they sent us a little note, asked if we would read this uh, publicly. And uh, we'll start our morning out praying for them and praying for Jake and Steph and praying for the time we'll spend together in the Word. Dear brothers and sisters from Crosspoint Fellowship, we just wanted to tell you all how much we are glad and privileged to meet you face to face and be able to spend time with many of you. Your prayers and love make us feel blessed and happy in the Lord to whom we serve with all our hearts in Kazakhstan. We're very thankful to God that he made it possible for us to come and see you all. You have encouraged us a lot with your love, care, and great Texas hospitality. May God bless you all. We love you, Malik and Olga Tukhanov. Let's pray for them and for Jake and Steph and pray for our time in the Word. <clears throat> Lord, in these next few minutes, um, first of all, as we gather, we just want to thank you for a sweet time with a couple of uh, families that we adore and enjoy, Jake and Steph and uh, their kids. We feel like a chunk of us uh, left to go to the other side of the world, and we're so thankful that, that you've given us things like... Um, technology where we can still communicate and talk with them, but you've given us a greater blessing of prayer where we can be part of the same work through prayer. We're thankful also for Malik and Olga, thankful for the few days that we had with them, a chance to get to know them better, a chance for them to walk with us for, for a time. Lord, we pray for their ministry in Kazakhstan. I pray that it'll be rich, that it'll be Christ-centered. I pray that you'll guard them from seeking the silver bullet program, but that they will just preach and teach the word and seek to walk in it obediently. Lord, I pray that you'll liberate them from this um, black cloud of searching for the next uh, plan and that they can just expose the word, enjoy you out loud, and that you will draw your people and build a church there. Lord, regarding that sort of mindset, I pray in these next few minutes that this people will enjoy you. I pray that as people that live next to the Tetons, we can look out the window this morning and enjoy the Tetons yet again this morning. We can enjoy the wonder and glory, amazing picture of the gospel, what you've done, not just as a model, but actually in accomplishing something through the cross. I pray that everyone in this room will better understand what it means to believe, where life comes from, what is in store for the living, who the living are, and that as shepherds, we can walk in that. We can talk with our families about that. As family members, as singles, that these sort of realities that we're about to engage will invade our disposition. That they'll impact us on Monday morning when we get up to have breakfast and we're facing the workday. These sort of realities will invade our Thursday nights as we sit as a family. Our Saturday mornings as we go to the fishing hole. Our Sunday mornings as we gather corporately. Lord, we pray that they will find purchase. They'll have an expression of enjoyment. They'll modify the way we live and love. We're so thankful for the Word, thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit. I just pray that He'll have full sway this morning, that He can speak in spite of me. I know He can. I ask for that. I pray that hearts are attentive this morning. I pray that You'll guard us from expectations, guard us from distractions, guard us from worries and fears and concerns about money or marriage, even marriage, work, health, 
I pray in these next few minutes that we can put all that stuff aside and just lay our lives bare to the exposition of the word and let you do your wonderful work in and through us and on us. Pray for the might of your word to have its way this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to give you a map of where we're going this morning, biblically. If you haven't been here before, you need to know that you need your Bible. Um, If you don't have one, that blue one that's in the seat back in front of you can be yours. You can have it, mark it up, take it home, put a cool cover on it. If you're embarrassed that you have a pew Bible, you shouldn't be. But here's the passages, if you want to give you a little map of where we're going this morning. John chapter 14 is where we'll begin. It's where our home base is. Ezekiel 37. John chapter 20. 1 Corinthians 15. John chapter 6. Philippians chapter 3 and Colossians 1. Just giving you a bird's eye view. And as you see, there's lots of Scripture there. We're going to be dining this morning. We have a, a full meal in store. I expect that by the end of the morning, that if you're attentive, you'll be burping. John chapter 14, Ezekiel 37, John chapter 20, 1 Corinthians 15, John 6, Philippians 3, and Colossians 1. Put your doilies or your ugly bookmarks that a family member made in those spots. We got to hang out with some friends a couple of nights ago, and uh, some of the guys went off together and actually were pig hunting, shooting pigs together. And you know how guys talk when they're pig hunting, right? You know how guys talk when they're pig hunting. So we're talking, and one of the husbands starts telling us about, uh, about his wife, her foot size. And I, I want to let you know right now that that couple's here. Don't worry, I'm not going to name any names. He starts talking about her foot size, and she wears a size 10, and she can't deal with that. And that's very, very difficult for her to reckon with, so she buys size 9, <laughs> or 9.5. She has a difficult time reckoning with the reality that she wears a double-digit shoe size. So she hobbles around in 9s and 9s and a half, and he said she complains about it, and he said, honey, just go buy some 10s. While it's funny to think about, and again, I will not name any names of who that is, while it's funny to think about, we can do the same thing with life and death. We can just kind of put on a different size shoe and say, ah, it's never going to be something I have to reckon with. That's not something that I really have to deal with, so we hobble along hoping to avoid reality. I don't know how many funerals I did the first six months I was here, but it was a lot. I bet it was at least six in six months, six years ago. We sort of had an older population then, and... Um, Since then, I don't know how many funerals I've done, but I've learned to appreciate them. I've never enjoyed one. It's not fun to walk through that time with a family. But I'm thankful for what they do for me and to me because they arrest me with our mortality. And they give me an urgency in my teaching and my preaching and my shepherding that I wish everyone had. The problem is each of you may go through four or five of those in your lifetime. We need to engage the realities of life and death. We need to reckon with what is true and what is imminent. This morning we're going to deal with matters that have to do with life more so than death, but they're consequent realities for death. What I'm hoping for this morning is eye contact, 
recognizing we're dealing with eternal matters, life and death. And eye contact, realizing that unless the Lord returns first, the death is imminent for every single one of us. I'm not talking about something that might happen to some of us. It's a sure thing. John chapter 14, verse 19. Jesus says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What I want to do first this morning is I want to kind of unpack the context and the meaning of this passage. First of all, that first phrase, Yet a little while, and you will see me no more. You need to understand and appreciate that he's not talking about forever. He's not saying the world will never see him again because actually over in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, don't turn there, just listen. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is speaking of Christ. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. That's a surety. He will be seen by all eyes. In this context, he's not saying that he will be seen no more. He's speaking of yet in a little while, he's going to be nailed to a cross. At this point, it's hours away. It might be 10, 12 hours. We don't know what time of night this is where they're having this conversation, but this is on the eve of his crucifixion. The trials will begin at 6 a.m. He'll be nailed to, and the beatings. He'll be nailed to a cross at 9. At noon, it'll go dark. And at 3 p.m., he'll cry out, it is finished. He's saying, in a little while, you will see me no more because he's going to be buried and will be out of sight. And if you remember how we've connected in John, that seeing is believing and knowing. He's saying to these guys, you are about to face a seriously dark, hopeless hour, men. You follow me for three years. You've had perfect access to me for three years. But you're about to face some hopelessness. You're not going to see me, but yet you will see me. There's this cool promise where he says, but then. He says, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. He's already anticipating the resurrection. He's speaking of his cross, but in the same breath he's saying, but you will see me. He's not going to be a perishable memory of a cool three years together. Or for his mom of a cool 30-something says, because I live, you also will live. And he promises life for his followers through his own life. And because of his own life. We're going to explore this extensively this morning. But before we continue, just take in the promise early on. The promise, you will live because he lives. He says, in that day, in verse 20, he says, in that day, you will know. You will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Saying, in the day of the resurrection, the disciples will know that he is in the Father, and that they are in him, and he is in them. He sounds like God right here. I want to show you something. Ezekiel 37. Flip over there if you would. Keep your finger there in John 14, because we're coming back to it. We were reading this as a family. We've been reading through the Bible for the last couple of years, and it's slow for the McGraws. I don't know why. We're pretty faithful about it, but we're in Ezekiel 37 yesterday. And I'm reading this, preparing to preach this week, and I'm thinking, man, this just sounds like God. 
Listen to Ezekiel chapter 37. This was written about 500 years before Christ was born and lived and died and resurrected. Written by the prophet Ezekiel. Verse chapter 37. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. He's about to have a vision. He says, This valley was full of bones, and he led me around among these bones, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Kind of import the crucifixion into this story and just imagine the dark hour of the cross where the Lord that they followed for three years is beside as being pierced and water and blood are gushing out. Where he's being put in a tomb that's just especially sealed like a big, big, big rock. Roman soldiers standing outside. They don't have guns, swords. Just imagine how dry these bones are. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> Ezekiel's playing it safe. I, you know, God, I don't know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And this is the key phrase you're going to hear repeated. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So... Ezekiel prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. Isn't that great? A rattling. Think of the horror movies that you've seen, bones rattling together. That's death, man. These bones are rattling, but the bones came together bone to its bone, the knee bone attached to the leg bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. You want to understand how God is working with the new Israel, us, the church? Look at how he's worked with the old Israel. You want to understand what he's up to and what salvation looks like? You get pictures of it right here. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. That tomb is so sealed. That spear so poked his side, and that blood and water so poured out of there, those thorns were so stuck on his head, he was so dead. Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Listen, this is the key. And you shall know keyword, know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Sound familiar? 
You see the knowing? You see the importance of the knowing and the knowing connected to the resurrection? He's encouraging, pointing these disciples to the reality. They're going to know when they realize that he's overcome death, that he is the Lord. Sounds like God wants to be known that way. And he wants it to be connected to the resurrection. They're going to know that he's just not a dude with some notions who's still dead. That's important. They're going to know that he's not a dude with some notions who's still dead. Turn to John chapter 20. Let's see it. Let's hear it. Let's hear what happens. You can catch up when you get there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, that big old stone. Hear those bones rattling? Big stone. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, They've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. She saw him standing, once dry bones clanking around. She sees him standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. It is this risen Lord that we speak of today. I told Scott that I'm sort of fearful sometimes on some Sundays, this being one of those Sundays. I mentioned this last week that we can be like a bunch of people that live next to the Tetons but never really have an appreciation for it just because we grew up there. It's just right there. We can grow up next to this reality and never really enjoy it because it's just so commonplace. Ah, he's risen. (laughs) How many Easter's have I been through? Easter egg hunting and such. And never really been blown away by this reality. This is who we're speaking of today. This Jesus, this Jesus lives. This is the most documented ancient event in history. Hear that. This is the most documented ancient event in history. And I want to tell you too, it's quite provable. First of all, you might think, well, these guys, they had agendas. There's no such thing as a writer that doesn't have an agenda. The key is to find the right agenda. 
Yes, they had agendas. Absolutely. John wrote these things so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing we may have life in his name. You bet they have an agenda. Don't dismiss somebody because you think they have an agenda. Every scientist has an agenda. Trust me. This is quite provable. First of all, as much as they would have liked to, they could not produce a dead body, both Romans and Jews. Show me the body. They couldn't do it. They would have loved to produce a body to put this thing to bed. Why do you think the thing was guarded by soldiers? They wanted that body to stay in that tomb because then it's done deal. They could not produce a body. Secondly, there were many witnesses, hundreds in fact. And these hundreds, many of which went on to be brutally martyred. That adds some credence to this, I'm going to tell you. Just imagine you being part of a lie at some point when they're threatening to disembowel you. I'm just kidding. Not for real. I didn't really see him risen. But these guys are saying, go ahead. Do what you got to do. He lives. Naomi threw a cross upside down. I can take it, I guess. I know he lives, though. I can't lie about that. Think about Peter. The chicken of Passover, seven weeks later, later is the bold preacher of Pentecost. Something happened in that seven weeks. He saw the risen Lord. That's what happened. In the town where he denied that he even knew the Lord before a little maiden. Oh, I don't know him. Seven weeks later, he's preaching before thousands in the very same town. It's because he saw the risen Lord. Something happened to him. He verifies the reality that this Lord is risen. Some of you think that Lord or that the Bible may be anti-women should consider that the first person, at least in this account, that saw Jesus was a woman. I want to tell you this lends credibility to this as well. In that day and age, you wanted to discount a story, say a woman saw it. Include women in the story in this day and age, and it would discredit the story. So tell me it's somebody with an agenda trying to make up a story. If it's somebody trying to make up a story, they're not going to give women witnesses. But now 2,000 years later, as we're considering women all over this story... It adds credibility. It is quite provable. This Lord is alive, and he is well, and he sits at the Father's right hand as we sit together this morning. Right? Amen? Now, a question I want us to consider in these next couple minutes before I want to unpack three things, but I want us to consider this question. Consider the question. We're going to consider this question about Christ and about whether that tomb is vacant or not, or what that means to understand the significance of his resurrection. What if he had not been raised? That's the question I want to consider. What if his tomb was still occupied? What if he had just been a tragic example? What if all we had was the memory of a good man wrongly executed who died quietly like a sheep is helpless before his shearers? What if that's all we had? What if, in fact, Christ had proven perishable? In the recent months, weeks, I guess by this point, yeah, it's weeks, we know about some of these recent deaths, these real public deaths like Michael Jackson, Farrah Fawcett, Billy Mays. Let's consider some of those people. We can maybe even look back further than that, consider some noteworthy deaths like Ronald Reagan, Selena, Princess Di, John Lennon, who ironically claimed that the Beatles would be more popular than Jesus. Let's consider these deaths because they're right here in front of us. They're recent, at least the first three I mentioned. These people, Michael Jackson, Farrah Fawcett, 
Billy Mays. They may be memorable and they may have even and may even continue to impact how you live and love. I, listen, I saw the Facebook responses. I saw the television. Lots of people were impacted by Michael Jackson's death. And that may even have an impact on how people live and love now. For example, if you're really into music, you might attribute your creativity to Michael Jackson. I understand how their lives may influence people and inspire people. But whatever these people may have offered in their lives, however remarkable, while what they offered may not have died with them, guess what? It dies with us. Whatever tunes I used to listen to, Michael Jackson tunes, man, I've got markers for me. I remember when Thriller and all those came out because they're markers for me for all the dates that I didn't have <laughs> back in high school. I remember them. You know, those memories die with me, though. Now, there may be other people that have those memories, but when they're all dead, all those things are just gone. They're perishable. Whatever influenced these people, Michael Jackson, Ronald Reagan, Princess Di, Selena, any of these people have ever had on you, you're going to die, and that influence will die with you. Ultimately, here's the reality. Whatever they offered, however amazing or impacting it may have been on our immediate world, whatever they offered was perishable because they were perishable. We've got to understand even music is perishable because the one writing it is perishable. Here's the reality. When there in a little while came... Remember going back to our verse, John chapter 14? In a little while, you will see me no more. When these people's little while came, and it says the world sees them no more, put a period after that because it's done. There is no promise of, but you will see me. This just didn't apply to some of these public figures. This would also apply to Muhammad. Muhammad was buried in the place where he died. Ironically, he has a tomb next to him that's vacant right now that's supposedly awaiting Christ. I got bad news. He'll not occupy another tomb. The same would be true of Buddha, as they call him, Lord Buddha, dead from a bad meal, in fact. He was cremated, and he is buried. Ironically, he told his followers at his death not to follow any leader, but to follow his teachings. And what you need to understand, even about these religious teachers, their teachings, Muhammad's, Buddha's, have no credibility because they're dead We've got to see a stark contrast between the teachings of Christ and the person of Christ and all these other teachings and all these other professing life changers and even professing prophets and supposed saviors. They are dead. Their teachings have no oomph. They have no staying power. Their teachings have no victory and they have no credibility. What they have taught and said is no more life-changing than Michael Jackson's song, Thriller. I'm not picking on Michael Jackson either. It's a song. Or Farrah Fawcett's poster. They do not give life because they came from people that are dead. Here's what Paul says if Christ is still buried. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, this is strong. This is so strong. This is what makes us Christian. This is what makes our Lord, this whole gospel, life-giving right here. He's dealing with what if his tomb was still occupied. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, or chapter 15, verse 17, page 961 of your ESV. Verse 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They are dead. They're just plain dead. There is no hope connected to them. There's no future resurrection from them for them. Because if Christ is still in his tomb, then his followers will still occupy their tomb. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, if in this life only, get that, we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Man, connect to that reality. If all we had was the memory of a tragic model, then we are the most to be pitied. You want to understand the importance of the resurrection? It is the very thing that achieves life for us. It is our gospel. It's not just an afterthought. It's not even a part of the story. It is the story. If his tomb was still occupied, let's just go home. Let's all go get drunk. Let's all give up everything that matters because life is futile. We're the most to be pitied if if that tomb is occupied. But our Lord lives and he is seated and he is well and he is at the right hand of the Father. So don't reserve any pity for us. We don't need it. That's for those that are trusting in dead people. Get that. Pity is for those who are trusting in dead people. Now, three three truths I want us to engage this morning. The first truth is we live because he lives. Remember the picture of the Tetons? Oh, that's just the Tetons. I live here. I grew up here. Don't you dare do this, this, this reality. We live because he lives. He said it right there in that passage. Because I live, you also will live. I'm going to share a few passages with you. If you're really fast, like sword drill warrior or something, you can hang with me in the next couple minutes for these passages I'm going to share with you. Just listen, though. I encourage you. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, this is the Holy Spirit that we preached about recently. If this spirit dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What you need to see is the power that was at work in raising him from the dead is the very same power at work in us. Man, that's some serious power. It's about to get better. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, if you're really fast. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The one who said, let there be light, and then there's light. I, I, I thought I made up a word. You know what a concussion is when you get hit in the head? It's like this concussive power. I thought I made up a word, but it's a real word. It's a good word, though. Concussive power, like an explosion. That power that said, let there be stars, and then billions of light years away, stars are hanging. That's the power that's at work in us. Does that blow your mind? Is that amazing that that power is at work in us? That very same power? You can imagine the creative power of God and imagining the power of the spoken word that's the same power that's at work in recreating us. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, a passage we engaged last week. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when those bones were clanking, this God made us alive, what? Together with Christ. We are alive because he lives, and we were raised and are raised together with Christ. Christ. You can imagine on that dewy Sunday morning when he stepped out in the wet grass and the sunlight and as he squinted, that we squinted too. When he had dew on his toes, are your feet wet? Because that was our morning too. Not because of anything we did, but because he did it. Because the power at work within him that raised him from the dead is the power at work within us raising us. We are raised with him. That reality is so amazing that it's not even bound to time. 2,000 years later, we can say that was our resurrection. Time bows to that ultimate reality. And here's a cool one. 1 Corinthians 15. You may have looked here already earlier. Just go back there. Let me show you this. 1 Corinthians 15. 54 and 55 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because Christ lives, death has lost its sting for those who follow him. I was talking with Scott about this the other day. My parents' house in Louisiana, my dad's got this old barn that's full of these big bees. These bees are like the size of hummingbirds. I mean... They're huge, and they're all over the place in this barn. And that first time I saw them, man, I was about to climb out of my skin. And Dad said, oh, those are just carpenter bees. I said, I don't care what they are. They look scary. I, they're going to kill me. He said, oh, no, carpenter bees don't sting. He said, look, and he caught one. And I'm like, man, I can't believe that. That thing really looks scary, but it doesn't hurt you. It's sort of like dirt daubers. You may have never seen a carpenter bee, but you know what a dirt dauber is. A dirt dauber is like a motorcycle with wings. Like a chopper. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to kill you. They're just looking for a place to slap some mud on the wall and stick their little spawn. They can't hurt you. But they look scary. That's what death is for those who are following Christ. Carpenter bees and dirt daubers. We live because he lives. Enjoy that reality. Don't let the Tetons go unnoticed. Second thing, and this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning. This life is only for the indwelled and the indwelling. John chapter 14 there, as you go back and look at that, pay attention to that next verse, verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. On the day of his resurrection, they would know that he's legit, and they would know that, pay attention, he is in the Father, and these next two things, they are in him, and he is in them. This promised life that we're talking about this morning, this promised life where, it just, where death is just a dirt dauber, that promised life is for those who are in Christ and have Christ in them. It's for those who are dwelling and abiding in Christ and are indwelled by Christ. This is the very thing that Jesus prayed about in his high priestly prayer the night before he went to the cross. He prayed, Father, I pray that they'll be in each other and in us as I am in you or in you are in me. This thing that's so hard to teach, this thing that's so misunderstood, I've never preached on it before a few months ago. 
It's hard to preach. It's the thing I've been so overwhelmed about this morning. How do you expose this? Being indwelt and indwelling. I want to first show you how important it is. Just listen to this machine gun of truth. Listen to how important it is to be in Christ. This is just from one book. Listen. Romans 3, 24, starting in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, this is therefore, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Chapter 8, verse 39. 38 and 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 12 verse 5. So we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then in Paul's closing comments on this book, hey, by the way, when you take this letter to Rome, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Statius. Man, this is so important to be in Christ. It's so hard to preach. It's so blah, okay, enough already. I want to know what it means to be in Christ. And I want to know what it means for Christ to be in me. I want to know how to dwell in and be indwelled. This morning, it's been my hope and prayer to show you that, to show you a clear picture of what that looks like. Let's turn to John chapter 6. There are people here this morning that want to know what it means to believe on Christ. There are people here this morning that want to know how to be saved. This is how. There are people here this morning who want to know how to experience this life that we're talking about this morning. John chapter 6 verse 56. Pay attention to the ingredients. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You see that? Indwelling. Indwelling in. Abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, or in other words, is indwelt by me and is indwelling me, he also will live because of me. The same exact ingredients in John chapter 14, verse 19 and 20. Life is for the indwelled and the indwelling. Being in Christ is so hard to teach, it's so underpreached, it's so undertaught, but it is so essential. And this passage gives a good picture of what it looks like. Life is characteristic of the gnawing. That's what that word means in the original language, eating his flesh. 
Life is characteristic of the one who is gnawing on Christ. The one who is drinking his blood. Those are present tense verbs. We live in a context here in Greenville, Texas, some of you in the surrounding areas. We live in a context where people will tell you that to be a Christian, you pray a prayer and you make a decision and you walk an aisle and you take a short dip in a cool pool and it's on. And the problem is most of Greenville has done those things, but yet they have no appetite for gnawing on Christ and drinking his blood. So we have an opportunity to present the robust picture of what it means to believe. Man, let's do it. Eating is a great picture to understand what it means to believe. Because eating is what the living do. You know when somebody is facing death, what do they stop doing? They stop eating and drinking. Someone who's dying on hospice, they stop eating and drinking. Because they're about to die. Eating is what the living do. Drinking is what the living do. And we do it daily until we die. You want to know what it means to believe on Christ? Look at eating. It's one thing we don't ease in and out of. It's one thing we do daily. We don't step away from the table for a few weeks or months because we're busy. Man, I'm so busy. I hadn't eaten in a month. (laughs) Man, that's bull. I don't care how busy I am. When it's lunchtime, it's on. Stop the machine. I don't care what's going on. It's time to eat. We don't neglect eating until we're about to die. And then... Hope in one meal to be restored to full health. That's what I get sometimes in counseling. Somebody who's never taken a bite, or they've neglected it for decades, or months, or weeks, and they say, let me have one meal that just fix all things. Man, come pull back up to the table and start eating daily with me. We eat daily because we need it. Nobody ever says grudgingly, I guess I better eat today. It's what we do. It's who we are. We eat to replenish. We also eat to fuel up for the rest of the day's challenges. What does it look like to dwell in and be dwelled in? What's characteristic of the living? It looks like a healthy diet consumed daily as we set aside the cares of the world and saddle up to the kitchen table to get our grub on. That's what life looks like. And that food indwells us and it nourishes us. There are churches... There are groups of people that they enjoy each other's fellowship, yet there's no food. There's no nourishment. I don't know how they hold on. In fact, I think that ship is sinking. I think that body is dying and doesn't even know it. Because it's the food that nourishes you. You can't eat fellowship. I love fellowship. But it's the food is what it's about. And for the people of God, that food is the word of God. And we come into the kitchen for some grub. Whenever Luke was a little boy, little bitty boy, he was two or three years old, he'd march downstairs first thing in the morning and he'd walk, prance right through us and walk right to the kitchen and announce in his gruff voice, give me some breakfast. (laughs) Every morning, that's the way it began. Give me some breakfast. That's what I want to see on God's people's face on Sunday mornings. Give me some breakfast. I love fellowship. I want to engage other people, but I need some food. I need to eat. I need to replenish, and I need to fuel up for the next few days. That's what's characteristic of one who's gnawing, one who's dining on Christ. I'll share a passage with you. I don't know if I gave you this passage. If you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. It's a picture of what this looks like from a guy 
who's just talked about salvation. I'd call him an expert, written a big part of our New Testament, Paul. In chapter 3 of Philippians, he's been talking about salvation. Been using these phrases. Listen to this. Using phrases like, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's talking about this life that we're talking about today. And listen to what he says next. He says, not that I've obtained it already. He doesn't have the fullness of it already. He's walking in life already. I'm about to show you that. But he hasn't obtained the full resurrection yet. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You want to understand what this picture of dwelling in and being indwelled by looks like? That's a great picture of it. I press on to lay hold of that which has already laid hold of me. I press on to eat that which has already eaten me. I press on to dine on what has already consumed me. I press on to indwell that which is already indwelling me. Pressing on is a great picture. Life presented as a decision and a trip down an aisle and a quick dip in a cool pool is problematic. Might it begin that way? It may, but that's sure not the fullness of it. Most of our community has had an experience like that, yet there's no appetite for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And there's so little pressing on, and there's so little, give me some breakfast. There's too few churches that are demanding that their preachers and their teachers don't bring the chow. I need to feed. That ought to be characteristic of the people of God. Every church. That's what we ought to be praying for in other churches. That's what you ought to be looking for in your church. Life is characteristic of those saddling up to the table, those that are gnawing on Christ and drinking his blood in worship, in wonder, in appetite, in obedience, and in community. And the third thing I want you to know is that life begins now. We live because he lives. This life is for the indwelled and the indwelling, and that life begins now. At Ephesians 2 picture where we're raised together with Christ, remember it's timeless reality. Time bows to that ultimate reality. We're already raised. That's why we connect with language like we're a new creation. That's why we can understand that the old is gone and the new has come. That's why we can understand we're a new humanity and a new person as a people of God. That's why we can connect to these things like Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be reborn from above. We're talking about a new life, and that life begins now. It's just not a future issue. It's something that begins right now. Colossians chapter 1 is the last place I want you to go this morning. I want you to see this briefly. Enjoy this. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness... And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Those two verbs there, delivered and transferred, those are both aorist tense verbs. It means that they happened at a point in time. It's not a tense that we have in our language, but it's sort of like past tense. But it's past tense meaning that it's contained in time. Bam! 
We've been delivered and transferred from this present evil age into the age to come already. This new life that Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly, we're walking in it, hopefully right now. It's not just something we hope for in the future. It's something that we are engaged in right now. The problem is we're walking beside, living beside, working beside people that look just as much alive as we do. People who are eating and drinking and rising to play. People who are giving in marriage, taking in marriage with no account for these ultimate realities. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, they continue to be dead in their trespasses and sins. Man, I hope you see an urgency about being salty and bright and aromatic in that setting. To be the living. To not look just like they look like. We have a call and an opportunity and a privilege of being the living in that setting. And we do that because of the cross. I'm going to share one last passage with you because I want you to see this. Listen to this. The passage I read already, death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? You're just a big carpenter bee, a big dirt dauber. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen what he says next. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Don't be blown about by every wind and doctrine and idea. Don't, when you have a friend breeze into town who's worldly and dead in their trespasses and sins, don't let that person make you compromise or lead you into compromise. You're the living. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We live that way because our Lord lives. Because we've already been made a new creation. It doesn't make us a new creation. It's what the living do. If we get our motive right and understand it right, we can live accordingly. We can live appropriately, putting the gospel on display. This morning, if you're that believer that's convicted about how you're living, if you're convicted about how easily you're blown about, I urge you live accordingly in response to the cross. If you're not a believer here this morning, or if you're hearing this and you're seeing this gnawing and you're going, man, I, I used to go to church and I got my church on, I was baptized or, or not, and I thought I was square with God, but I'm hearing it today and I'm going, man, I don't think I was. I don't think I am. Here's my encouragement to you. We're not going to have you come down the front or anything like that. I'm going to encourage what the Bible says to do. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. Just like I said, gnawing on it, enjoying it, letting it invade your disposition, letting it invade your Tuesday morning conversation at the breakfast table, letting it invade your Thursday night time together as a couple, letting it invade your friend time out on the hay field on a Saturday afternoon. That's gnawing on it. If you're not a believer, man, start eating. Start eating. You want to know what to do? Believe on Christ, whom the Father has sent. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that today that the robust picture of what it means to believe has been put on display. I pray that all of us are swallowing hard, considering whether we are in Christ. Lord, I pray that we as a people are raging after Christ, 
I pray that these ultimate realities are invading our quiet time, our loud time, and every time in between. I pray that they're finding their way into our dinner tables. I pray they're finding their way into our conversations at the workplace. I pray that they're finding their way into our hearts as we shave in the morning or as we fix our hair. And we consider this amazing picture of the cross and the resurrection and what it means. Lord, I pray that we will live appropriately because we are the living. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship.
some Sundays I always feel feeble, but some Sundays especially feeble. And this was one of those Sundays, and I'm sitting here reflecting on things that I could have developed more or less. But one thing that I could have developed more is something called means, especially when we're talking about believing. We have this thought, I guess it's kind of a Western thought, that thinks that we, if something's genuine and real, we have to be kind of caught up in it. We fall in love, and then we fall out of love. And this kind of thing that just almost like a wave that catches us up, if it's real, that's baloney. That's baloney. Some of you might be at the point in your Christian journey where you're thinking, man, the Bible used to really just, God used to just scream at me through the Bible in prayer. He's like he was in the room. And you might feel like, man, where is he? The guy named John of the Cross, they call that the dark night of the soul, and that's a time of purifying your faith. That's where he takes your faith from growing to be a thing that just you're after the trappings of it to enjoying him more than the trappings. That's a sweet time. That happens in your marriages too. You go from the warm, fuzzy phase where it's all good and your heart flutters when your wife or your fiancé or girlfriend speaks your name. Ooh. To later, What? <laughs> Man, you move past that and you find real love on the other side of that. It doesn't always feel like this wave you're caught up in. Sometimes it feels like a train you're pushing. It does. The same is true of the Christian faith where Paul is saying, I press on to lay hold of something that's already laid hold of me. You want to know what believing looks like? That's what gnawing looks like. You're eating something that's already consumed you. But you're still eating it. And you're elbowing kung fu fighting the world to get to that table. Man, get out of my face. I got to go eat. I got a Lord I want to go enjoy. Do I feel like it today? Maybe not. But who cares? Like, you, it's a, I don't feel like being married today. Well, you're married. <laughs> it's a, it doesn't matter how you feel. You go eat. And then when you eat, you find you're changed. And then you elbow the world again next week or the next day. And you say, I got to eat. And meanwhile, Satan's whispering to you, wanting to devour you, giving you some reason not to go engage, not to be known and not to know. But you press on to lay hold of that which is already laid hold of you. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to work. See how means works? You work as if it's up to you knowing that he's the doer. You press on with your salvation like it's up to you, but yet you know he's the one that saves. That's what belief looks like. He's the saver. But man, you work at it. You walk in it. You engage it. You elbow the world to get to that table and eat that fuel, that nourishment that is characteristic of the living. That's what salvation looks like. I want to encourage you too, if you have some questions today and you're like, man, I'm kind of processing some of this. You need somebody to talk to. It may be the person that brought you this morning or it may be the person that you met this morning. Maybe the person that invites you to lunch today or it might be me or Brad uh, Steve's out of town this morning, but Steve's the other elder. You can contact him. Our contact information is on the back of the bulletin. You can contact us via the website. You could get in touch with any of the deacons. Man, I'm telling you, that's an open door. We're talking about stuff that matters, that we will make time for. That will never be an imposition. That would be a privilege to talk with you and walk with you through some of what you heard today. Turn it over to Brad. All right, Bud and Nathan, y'all come on up here for a minute and bring your boys with you. Bud Jones is a Crosspoint member, and um, his son Braden, and then Nathan Green, and 
his son Isaac have been, uh, well, Nathan and his family have been visiting with us and walking with us for a while. These guys are headed on a, um, I guess what you call a mission trip, and um, they're headed to Africa to do some construction work. And I want to do, um, I want, as we pray for them, I want to connect this two different ways. I would hope that we see that this is not just a renegade trip that they're going on for themselves or for their family or just for their boys, that this is our people going out and we're sending them. Okay, they're coming out from among us to do this. So this is a body issue. This is not just two families going to do something good. This is cross point going. And I want us to connect that. And the other thing I hope we connect this to is this is obedience and this is worship. Amos says that if our worship is just songs and no action, that that's noise to God and he wishes we would stop. And this is, in Amos it says, worship is justice rolling like a river and that's what they're going to do. They're going to help people in construction and that's justice. They're going to work justice so that the gospel would be put on display. And you don't have to be, this is obedience, you don't have to be good at anything to go and put gnawing and eating and drinking blood on display. You don't have to be good at anything. In fact, it doesn't matter if you're good at anything to do that because it's not about construction. It's not about what you're good at. It's about obedience. These guys got passports. There was hard work and there was obedience that started a long time ago that's culminating now with what God's going to do through them. And the construction work that they do will be a vehicle to put the gnawing on display in these men's lives. And so that's what this is, just real quickly. And I hope that you will engage them before they leave this Thursday, and they'll be gone for about a week. Engage them. Find out how they got to this point with their boys. Find out what God did to bring them to this point to even do this. And then when they get back, I hope you'll engage and find out what God did through them and what they see on the field. All right, let's pray for these guys. I'll, I'll lead us in that prayer. Father, thank you for... Uh, men who are living out obedience and worship, not just in front of their families and not just in front of our body, but that are willing to go and be obedient to live out the eating of your flesh, the drinking of your blood, the life that you give us, this life, because you're alive, we do this. And we know that you have gifted these men in certain areas, but we pray, God, above all else, above the work that's done, the labor that's done, that people will see beyond strong backs and, um, and a gifting and experience in construction, that they'll see two men living out faith with their young men, and that people will be drawn to Christ because of how they live among these people as they work. That's our prayer. And that's, our, that's what we cling to this morning is just a dependence upon you that you're going to make your name great through what these guys do the next week and that we would do the same thing here while they're gone. I pray, God, that you'd remind us to pray for these guys as they're gone, that you'd bring them back home to us for your name's sake. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Real quick, you guys have a seat. I've got real quick announcements, and I'll let you go. We have um, prayer time. Every Thursday here in the treehouse um, at 6.30 a.m., the uh, youth are going to go on a camping trip next weekend to uh, Oklahoma.
That's the 30th through the 1st. If you have any questions, if you have a team, you have some questions about that camping trip, uh, see Scott Sutton, and um, we'll get you hooked up. We have another family that has had the opportunity, opportunity to adopt. Uh, we just went through this with the Hamiltons, and God provided, and it was so cool that we have uh, Lila now. And uh, the Roddens, Ken and Don Rodden, have the opportunity to adopt a child as well. And um, they signed up for this thing. I know that they signed up for this thing to um, adopt a baby, and their birth mother's having twins. So not just a baby, but babies. And um, the cool thing is that God has um, provided already the money, but the reality is that there will be about $8,000 due in the next week and a half, and then another six due in about three weeks. And um, we are going to have a carnival for them, a uh, carnival out at Clique Retreat on, um, remind me, uh, August 15th is the carnival. But there's a planning meeting for that carnival Tuesday night at Jeff and Ginevra's house. Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, no kids, business. If you want to help with that and get down to business, we're going to do this in an hour at the Ott's house. If you're willing to be a part of planning that carnival on the 15th to raise funds for these adoptions, please be at the Ott's house Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. If you have any uh, thoughts of or ability to donate things that are fun for a carnival, please let Ginevra know, let one of us know. All right? All right, let me dismiss this in prayer, and, um, and we'll go. Father, thank you for this day, for this word that you've uh, given your people today. Thank you for what you're doing uh, amongst our youth, amongst our families, and, and, uh, and this adoption stuff is just really, um, it's, it's really humbling and scary and good, and uh, we pray that we'd be wise as we move forward with this and that uh, your name would be made great because of all that we are eating and living in front of this world. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.